Hi, I'm Dr. Gil Wilshire. I'm a board-certified physician, surgeon, and reproductive endocrinologist. Welcome to my series of podcasts where we discuss medical matters that matter to you. I'll be interviewing top experts in their fields, and we'll also be delving into fascinating backstories from deep within the world of medicine. So, I'm confident you'll find the information in these podcasts valuable, and they will assist you on your journey to optimum health. Welcome to the Dr. Gill Show. This is where we talk about medical matters that matter to you. And remember, you can trust me because I'm a doctor. <laughs> Gets them every time. My guest today is Dr. Clay Mecklen. Welcome to the show, Clay. Thank you. Thank you. Clay is uh, both a friend and a colleague of mine. Uh, we work uh, very closely together. Clay is a urologist uh, and a u- urologist with subspecialty training uh, in the treatment of male infertility. Now, Clay, did was there a point in your life, in your childhood, when you decided or you thought, gee, I want to be a doctor? Uh, I kind of always liked anatomy. You know, I was really interested in anatomy and, um, the you know, the sciences associated with that, biology, all of that. And so, I, you know, and that was even as, you know, high school, maybe even junior high, I kind of gravitated toward that. And yeah. Now, is your dad a, a doctor? Yeah. Your so father? He, yeah, he's an ear, nose, and throat. Now, were you uh, one of those kids that he can be any kind of doctor he wants to be, or did they really push you into medicine, or did you have no, the he latitude? Really, he really didn't. I mean, I think, of course, he always thought that would be nice or would have liked maybe me to do that, you know, would have gladly had me join his practice. But he was very supportive. He didn't really, really care. You know, he, he was fine. Didn't force you into medical school. Didn't force me to be a booger picker. Okay. (laughs) Is that what ENT guys are? I love it. Booger pickers. I'm going to use that on my next ENT doctor. Um, I have one lined up right now. We're going to talk about cochlear implants and and booger picking. So, Clay, you went to uh, university here at Mizzou in Columbia, Missouri? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yes. So, in um, preparing for this interview, Clay, I revisited the history of urology, one of the first surgical practices on human beings. And uh, I don't know if our audience knows, when you lie on your back with your legs up, it's called lithotomy position. patient was placed in lithotomy position. When you think about it, lith means stone, and otomy means making a hole in something. So it is essentially the position for cutting for stones. And painful, painful uh, bladder stones, urinary tract stones have plagued humanity forever. And these early uh, pioneers in surgery would cut for stone in the most horrific ways you can imagine. They've got pictures of the tools that they developed, this early surgical instruments that they did to cut for stones. And you know, people were in so much pain, they, they would lie there and, and, and be... Yeah. So what? Tell me about so urology is one of the oldest surgical specialties. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the history of urology. Yeah, well, I think that the thing that's most interesting is how all the endoscopic, minimally invasive equipment has come about. I mean, you know, in the beginning, you had 
what you're talking about, where basically somebody's putting a metal rod in there and feeling if it hits a stone and then hitting it with a hammer and trying to break really it. Break Can you it? imagine if you were awake and you're just you could hear the guy tapping and getting ready to like find it, would it. break it with <laughs> with 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 a, a almost a chisel. Yeah, probably a high mortality rate on that procedure. Oh my but, god! But so we started with that med- medieval stuff, but then it, it, it's come a long way. So uh, they had early scopes that actually used candles for light. Uh-huh. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff to to look in, you know, through the penis, through the natural openings. Um, and then those have kind of morphed to uh, uh, fiber optics and, and what we have today. And there's there's quite a a bit of uh, different phases or transitions along the line, but um, that's where it started. And I mean, yeah. I mean, it's not just patients too. I mean, can you imagine urologists what you would have to do? I mean, these oh. guys had serious neck and back problems because ah. there's no looking at a screen. They had to bend over yeah. and look through the scope, you know, or the, the where it enters the or penis the, the or retractors. Yeah. So I mean, for hours they're bent over doing this oh. stuff. I know cutting for stones, it was like the real good guys could do it in under a minute. Yeah. You know, so that was quick. They'd <clears> go in, they'd feel, they'd push it down. Oh, my God, just horrendous. Yeah. Um, so urology is a long, long, long history. Now, what some people don't realize is that urologists, you, you re- treat the urinary system. So men and women have need of urologists. So the urinary system starts up in the kidneys. Everybody, well, most people have two kidneys, right? Yeah. And it goes through a tube, from usually one tube, from the kidney down to yeah. the bladder. And men are, and women are essentially the same there. And we can all suffer from infections and from stones. So let's talk about infections. You hear about women getting chronic urinary tract infections or uh, kidney infections and whatnot. How big of a problem is that? Well, I think there are kind of two things we see. Uh, we see infections in people with anatomical problems. So uh, there's, I mean, it's just like any other system. So you think of a freshwater um, stream, right. so nice, clean, you can drink from it, right. versus a stagnant pond water. Right. So you want the freshwater stream. You want your system to flow freely, no blockage. Mm-hmm. You know, that helps prevent bacteria. So if you get a stone and you have some bacteria, it becomes uh. a much, much worse infection because you get a buildup behind the blockage it goes into the bloodstream you can get very very sick whereas if you didn't have a stone then it would probably burn when you went to the bathroom mm-hmm. be uncomfortable but you're not going to be in the hospital with a potentially life-threatening condition so you know there's anatomic reasons why we get more serious infections so if a woman is getting recurrent uh, urinary tract infections it could be due to something abnormal in her anatomy Something's just not quite right, working quite right, or a stone or something. or something Not emptying their up, bladder. Not emptying their bladder. This type of thing. So if a woman is or a man is getting recurrent infections, they really ought to see a urologist to find mm-hmm. out why, what the problem is. Yeah. Now, you, now let's talk about stones. Stones have clearly been with us forever. I was also surprised to see a lot of stories about children getting stones what what causes uh, kidney and urinary tract stones yeah so you know you have genetic reasons and you have dietary reasons and so more often in a child we're gonna that's going to be a genetic reason they just have a predisposition to form certain types of stones because they can't 
because of the ways they uh, concentrate calcium in the urine or uric acid or, or these common types of uh, salts that we find in the stone. So there's usually an anatomic reason why a kid would get a stone. Or a metabolism, they, they, they're, they're, the way their enzymes right. work, they make more of this or that or sure. whatnot. So a metabolic source of stones. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can affect children and men and women. Yeah, yeah. Boy, so do stones uh, always start up in the kidney, or do they, they can they form in the bladder too? Well, what what yeah, where, is, where so, do stones come from? Right. So usually they they start in the kidney. Uh, they start forming uh, little calcifications on the lining of the collecting system where the urine concentrates before it goes down and goes out the bladder. Uh, those are called Randall's plaques. But you know then the stone starts to form and then it falls off, and you don't really know it's there while it's forming. It's only when it falls off and can plug the drain that you feel pain, you know, because otherwise it's like a marble in the bathtub doesn't cause a problem unless it goes down the drain and stops it up. I love it. So great analogy. So some people are just predisposed to stones. Mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of controversy on what diets might or might not. Now, is it true that uh, spinach that has a lot of oxalate or oxalic acid, does mm -hmm. that encourage stone formation? Yeah. Yeah, the most uh, common type of stone is calcium oxalate. So oxalate okay. uh, can form stones. Now, it's pretty uncommon that just eating spinach is going to cause a stone by okay. itself. Uh -huh. Usually there's some propensity to, to form those types of stones. Some of the diets that we see uh, that can contribute are uh, diabetic diets, like the high-protein, the keto diets, that make you a little acidotic, and that can promote stone. You think formation. they can, huh? Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. But if you're not predisposed to stones, it shouldn't shouldn't be an issue. Shouldn't be an issue, yeah. Interesting. Now, let's say somebody has stones. What are the various things you have to do, short of the medieval cutting for stones, uh, barbaric procedures? You have much more um, precise, elegant uh, ways to treat stones nowadays, yeah. don't you? So yeah, so it depends on the size and if there are any complicating factors. So if you don't have severe infection, you don't have any sign of kidney damage, um, you're able to tolerate, you know, get some food down, drink, and your pain can be controlled, then if the stones are small enough, we can give you what we call a trial of passage or let you try and pass the stones. That's usually stones that are five millimeters or less, but everybody's a little different. Yeah. Five millimeters. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you can, now, do you do you need an IV to hydrate you? Or can you just just drink a lot of fluids? Is no, you can, as long as you can keep them down, you know. And sometimes people get pretty severe nausea with a stone. So as long as you're able to keep fluids down and get pain control with those types of stones, you can try and pass them. How do you know how big they are? Uh, so X-rays or CAT scans. CAT scans. I thought a lot of stones you couldn't see. Or do, can you image most stones? Yeah, the vast majority of stones which have calcium. Calcium in them will show up on X-ray or CAT scan. Good. They will all, almost all of them will show up on CAT scan. There are a couple of very rare things, but you, I mean, you almost never see those. Okay. But uric acid stones will not show up on a plain X-ray. Ah. Uh, now that's the minority of stones, but some people, you know, people that have gout have high uric acid levels. They're, they're going to have uric acid stones most likely. Ah, uh, gotcha. So let's say you've got a bigger stone. In your kidney mm -hmm. what, what what can you do to treat yeah. that so you know we talked about less than five millimeters you'll go you know about five millimeters to one and a half uh, centimeters 
we treat that either with shockwave. What's that? Is that called lithotripsy? Right. What does that involve? So that involves, we do put people to sleep. Uh, You're on flat on a table, and we send uh, sound waves or shock waves from outside the body directed at the stone with the aid of x-ray to break up the stone. So you're not in a tub. I thought you were in a tub for that. No, no. That's that's how much I know. Yeah. Old school. So it used to be in a tub. Yeah. But now they put you to sleep because it hurts. Yeah. And they send powerful shock waves and they focus them and you use an x-ray and you can actually break up these big break stones. Break them up. So we don't have to go inside. So uh-huh. a little less invasive. Uh, sometimes do they pass? Yeah. And then not, the goal is to pass all the pieces or the sand out afterwards. Um, sometimes we put a little stint in to help them. Help them pass. A stent, that's a little tube. So you'd put a telescope in the in the bladder called a cystoscope, mm-hmm. and you'd pass a little tube up the urethra to the kidney. Right. And they have little curly cues on the end. That's right, right, to keep so, them in place. So they're called pigtails, right? Yep. Am I right? Yep. So you turn you turn this stone into sand or sludge or whatever, mm-hmm. put a stent up there, Right. hydrate well, and they just literally wash out? Mm-hmm. That's the goal, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, what if it it doesn't break up or whatnot? How how do you get the what can you do about those with those stones rather than making a huge right. incision right. in your belly so, or your flank? Right. So if they don't break up, you know, every once in a while there'll be a little bigger piece left over. We go in with a little telescope through the natural openings. Okay. okay where you urinate from. So you go through the urethra, guy or gal. Yep. Into the bladder, and then you continue up the ureter all the way up. You've got scopes small enough to yep. do that. Yep. That's and you small. can actually see. We, we can see we can also pass baskets and lasers through there to break up the stone and ah, remove them. So you can get the stone, break them mm-hmm. up more, or put it back and actually withdraw them and take them out yeah. precisely. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. So in that way, you can really help. You can, really, you can cure the stones then and, and, yeah. and not damage the patient with, a, with an unnecessary surgery. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty rare to make a big open incision now. Even the really big stones, three centimeters, I mean, golf ball, huge stones. We can go through the back with uh, basically um, a little tube. Okay. So puncture mark a little tube uh-huh. and use uh, ultrasonic uh, equipment to break up the stone, suction out the stone. So basically, there's just a puncture mark that we don't even put sutures in. It just seals wow. up on itself. Wow, that's elegant. That's elegant. You know, and while we're talking about kidneys, let's stay on kidneys. Do you treat kidney cancers? I do. I do treat some t- So what, how would one know if you ha- they, they have a kidney cancer? Do you, do you pass blood in your urine or have pain? Or, or how does one even know? Yeah. Most commonly nowadays, it's either found um, from a workup for blood in the urine, which could be something that you can see with your own eyes, or microscopic, where they do just a screening urine test with your primary doc. It shows up on a dipstick. Right. Your urine doesn't look bloody, but it shows yeah. up on the stick. Okay. But they see it. Um, and so we do a workup where we uh, check to see if there are any tumors or kidney stones, and that involves a CAT scan, and we find it that way. Or uh, people have what's called an incidental renal mass, where they went into the ER because they thought they had appendicitis and then they get a CAT scan and then they find these things that are teensy tiny one centimeter. Gotcha. We call them incidentalomas found incidentally. Mm -hmm. That's the reason they don't offer CAT scans in the shopping mall anymore. They used to have, I don't know, 20 years ago, they take a semi truck. It was, it was, it was a, uh, you know, it was a business. Yeah. Bring a semi truck with a CAT scan in it. 
and you'd have a barker go to the hallway, come get your CAT scan here, you know, check everything, right? Everybody'd say, oh, I get to check everything. Yeah. And then they find these yeah. things they wish they didn't yeah. find. And they're so small now that right. sometimes we just watch them or, you know, uh-huh. and, and, and see because it's hard to tell when they're so small what, what it is. So can you biopsy them? Can you, you go can. in there and do these little... These little directed mm-hmm. biopsies, yep. CT guided biopsies, ah, and you do those. Uh, the interventional radiologist does. Uh, they'll even do that for you. Yeah. And if they find something, you are prepared to take out a kidney mm-hmm. and the surrounding tissues. And... Right. Right. Now I assume kidney transplants are done at special transplant centers, yeah. right? Yeah, that that you need that. a whole team for yeah. that, right? So that's you could do it, but you'd have to be in the context of a team so you can take care of uh and sometimes people are born with abnormal kidneys right that aren't working well mm-hmm. or malshapen or malshaped you know uh there are conditions where they don't drain properly or you get reflux or the urine gets backed up making you prone to infections um we don't i say we i don't do uh peds outside of maybe kidney stones or peds something. being pedi i mean yeah. children yeah, pediatric urology. So there is a specialty called mm, pediatric separate, urology yep. where someone's done additional probably years of training mm-hmm. just for, for kids. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. good. So, but if a kidney's malfunctioning and the other one is good, you certainly are more than qualified to just take the kidney out. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. So working our way down now, we've, we've talked about stones, talked about infections. Now... In women, especially after they've had a baby or two, and I still can't, you know, I delivered about a thousand babies in my training. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not an obstetric, I don't do obstetrics, but I still can't believe, believe a baby can come out the pelvis and not kill the woman. I mean, it yeah. just seems like such a traumatic thing. But in the process, it's stretching the fibers that hold up mm-hmm. the bladder, for example. And women, after they've had a few kids, can become incontinent. They sneeze, they scroll, right. spending a penny, you sneeze, you lose some urine and sometimes it can be it can be very very serious so female incontinence is 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 a real thing now is that something you would treat like in in the world of OBGYN there is a whole bona fide subspecialty of pelvic reconstructive surgery where the GYNs are doing a lot of this incontinence. yeah urogynecology urogynecology yeah. now have they taken that away from you or are you glad to uh to we're got to do yeah it? we I'm, it's not i mean you we'll talk about what i kind of focus on in my subspecialty later sure. but um you know there are urologists that do fellowships in that right uh urogynecologists that do fellowships and, and are trained for that uh-huh. now uh some of the more straightforward things you know that we will treat we, we would treat uh when i say we like in my practice we would treat to urge incontinence as opposed to stress incontinence. So urgent incontinence is gotta go, gotta go. Oh, I couldn't hold it. I had an uh, accident. That could be treated medically with medications or Botox injections, things like that. So that's something you could do and, yeah. and any good general urologist could treat. Yeah. But you know, just like we'll talk about implants later, you want yeah. somebody that's done a lot of them. I mean, you don't want sure. some guy that does one hip a year to do your hip Dude, replacement. Right. So we, we tend to, in urology, subspecialize in some of those more complicated prosthetic or reconstructive uh, areas. All right, so so I'm gonna leave the, the combined male and female world of urology, and now we're gonna get to the male world. Yeah. Like Mr. Rogers said. It's interesting girl, stuff. The interesting, <laughs> <laughs> the interesting stuff. I think Mr. Rogers said, girls are fancy on the inside and boys are fancy on the outside. Okay. So we're gonna start talking about the boys a little bit here. Now, 
I believe one of the most common urologic surgeries is a vasectomy. Uh-huh. Just by the by numbers. I, I could imagine. Lots of that. Now, do you do vasectomies? Oh yeah. Yeah. Now I've heard of one guy, you know, having a couple of drinks, a urologist and Using and actually doing his own vasectomy. Oh yeah, I've, I've heard that is a thing. It, it has been done. I, yeah, I have not done that. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I would be terrified. I mean, I'd hate enough, for my wife to find me like passed out on the floor halfway through a vasectomy. Yeah, I have enough trouble with a mole or a hair <laughs> or something on my body, let alone that. So, vasectomy is it a fairly simple procedure? For yeah, yeah. Is it an outpatient procedure? Oh yeah, I do it under awake, just like I'm talking to you. I would be talking to the guy with a local anesthetic. And it takes about 15 minutes to do. 15 minutes. Yeah. And I know there's many ways to tie a fallopian tube. I'm sure there's a number of ways to tie a, a vas. But if a guy is potentially not sure, he has some doubt. I mean, you don't want to do a vasectomy on anybody who has doubts. But uh, sometimes you can foresee that if the guy's 23 years old, he has five kids, but he, his life may be changing in 10 years. Yeah. Um, are there any vasectomies that are less destructive that are most easily reversed uh well the easiest way to reverse it would be if you just um put a clip on it and didn't take out a big section however that's going to be the least effective at so so if you take out just a little piece put on a couple clips there's more likely that that a fistula or a connection will form and sperm still might be sneaking out is that what you're saying yeah yeah the two things that have shown to decrease failure clinically through trials it's going to be uh, what we call um, fascial interposition. That means that you put tissue between the two ends. Whether okay. you let one end retract and bury it with a clip, whatever, you have tissue between the two ends so they can't just grow back together. Gotcha. And then the next one is going to be where you take out a section and cauterize the inside of the, the, the downstream part of the tube. Gotcha. So that there's no more lumen or opening. It's just blind in. It's burning scars right down. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And you can, once again, do that under local mm-hmm. very easily. And if you go to an experienced surgeon like you, what, what would the failure rate in that be? 1%, 1 in 1,000? Uh, you know, I quote the AUA, that's our national guidelines for urology. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I quote 1 in 2,000, which is what's in their guidelines. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty rare. Point. Oh, five percent. If I'm yeah. if I'm doing the math right, yeah, Pretty yeah, rare. right. Yeah. Fantastic. So very easily done. Now, sticking in the the scrotal area here, um, there's a a common condition where a guy has a big, massive veins in the scrotum called mm-hmm. a varicocele. Yeah. Um, I understand that uh, you do a lot of surgeries to repair or get get those veins out of the scrotum to to help. Uh, Male fertility, so I think yeah. those veins increase the temperature, particularly on the, the testicle on that side, and taking out those veins can improve the function of that testicle. Is that true? That's true. So just like you see people with uh, big veins in the back of their legs, and, and those people can have pain in their legs from those veins, yeah. same concept. You know, you have poor blood flow or stagnant blood flow, buildup of inflammatory substances or uh, am reactive oxygen species, mm-hmm. just basically toxins, you know? And so that can damage the sperm or, or the cells that, even the cells that make testosterone can be affected. And we don't, there's been a lot of people trying to figure out exactly how this works. We don't know exactly. We know it has something to do with um, thermal regulation and, you know, just healthy 
blood flow to the testicles. Um, but we don't know the, the exact mechanism, but it's very clear that fixing them is beneficial in the right individuals. And if you t wait, well, you have to wait like six months, nine months to see improvement or um, so sperm parameters? Yeah. So what I do is you do the surgery. And then at three months, we do our first semen analysis. Okay. And usually you can see some improvement. That quickly, even mm -hmm. after three months? Yep. Usually at six to seven months, you'll see kind of the, the maximum improvement. The max out there. there yeah. You just, so, so, the re, so the results can be fairly quick. Okay. That's, yeah. that, that's good to know. Now, there's other messes. Let's say, you know, they tell women to do a breast exam in the shower because that's when everything's slippy yeah, and soapy yeah. and smooth. They recommend that guys do testicular exams in the shower as well. Everything's warm and it, it, yeah. it's easier to feel things. So if a, if a guy, uh, what, and a gentleman, a man should examine himself, what, once a month, once a year? Once Other a month. There's yeah, a guidelines for that. Yeah. So let's say you're taking your shower, you're saying, hey, it's the first of the month, I'll do my uh, self-exam. If you feel a mass in there, it's not always a cancer, is it? No, no. I mean, there, there are a couple possibilities there based on your history. I mean, have you had scar tissue trauma to that area, infections? Um, there can be benign masses. Um, you can get little calcifications called scrotal pearls in there. Scrotal pearls in there. Okay, so, so you're doing the exam. There. There's something new in there. Yeah. You shouldn't get terrified and figure you have a cancer. You should go see your urologist. Well, you should get it checked out. Absolutely. So someone's experienced doing this. And can I say that most of these masses are benign, meaning not cancer? Uh, you know, if you're talking about the scrotum, I would say, yeah. If you're talking about just the testicle, okay. you know, if it's just the testicle and you're in that 20 to 30-year-old range in a man, Okay. You got to take it serious. I mean, you got to get so it it's, it's, This is the, I'm glad we're talking about this. So you're doing your exam. Now, I believe it testicle has a little epididymis on it. So it's, it's, it's round and there's just a little kind of tail off the side of it. That's normal. So that's not a mass. Right. That, right. And that's where if you're doing this every month, you kind of know, well, that's where, feel the that. that's where the tail is. That's normal for me. Like women with breast exams, they know where the glands are. They say, right. hey, this is my normal. Right. Yeah. This is my normal. But is there something new? then testicular cancer is, is a thing. Yeah, I it? mean, if it's hard, it feels like a rock in there, it's hard, it's new. And testicular cancer grows extremely fast. Fast. Very, so, I mean, within a week, it's going to... Oh, my double, goodness, a week? You know, very fast. So, you'll know. I mean, it's not like... And it's crazy how long people wait to come in. I mean, oh, softball-sized, yeah. rock hard. I mean, it's just like, oh, man. Yeah, so didn't you know? Yeah, we see that all over the body, especially in yeah. my world too. He said, "Didn't yeah. you notice this?" Or yeah. well, I thought it was a yeast infection. Yeah, I say, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they're just they're just embarrassed about yeah, that area. Sure. And, it's a sensitive area. Yeah, but unfortunately, it's, you just gotta. So if there's a mass that's new, you get to get once again get to see yeah. your urologist. Yeah. I see these ads on TV about a bent. Carrot. Mm -hmm. Something about a bent carrot. They don't say anything else except something. I think one of it is Peroni's disease. Is yeah. that what we're talking yeah. about? Please enlighten me. What is yeah. this bent carrot Peroni's disease all about? Yeah, so that's something I see a lot of. And, um, you know, that can, as opposed to some of the erectile dysfunction, that can tends to affect older gentlemen. This can affect very young people. I mean, 20s, 30s. 
uh, as well as as older individuals. How's the guy know? Is this when he has an erection? There's yeah. there's a bend or something. So there's kind of two ways it comes about. Um, one is there's clearly a traumatic event. Usually, Weiss on top slides out, comes down well, hard so on it. So you can actually this is not a this is not a myth. You can break your penis. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You can break your penis. You can break. All right. I mean, they I hear a snap. Oh. And it immediately deflates and oh, it's purple and it's swelled up like an eggplant. Oh, I mean, that's a, that's that's not good. Oh yeah. Does it hurt? Uh yeah, but I mean they're they're in pain initially, but within uh twenty four hours it tends to go down, but and sometimes people, that's scared. why they delay coming in. But you want to get in right away if that happens. Get right away. So if yeah. you, break, you can break your it's penis not and subtle. if it happens, it's, it's not, not subtle. subtle. Like, All right, so that's one way. Okay, this is yeah. right up there with lithotomy, uh, yeah. cutting for stones. That's one. So the other one is you guys, usually it's guys are, the erections aren't as hard as they used to be. They're having intercourse. And there's kind of some almost like micro trauma. They don't realize it, but they're trying to kind of force it in, or it's uh -huh. not quite hard enough, and there's just things are bending. And that can also and, traumatize. And, and you don't see the bruising or the, the swelling, uh -huh. but you get scarring in there. And so the penis is kind of unique because it's, it's basically just a completely elastic organ. Okay. And so there's a, a almost like a sausage casing. There's an elastic, two elastic tubes that fill up with blood. There's the two of those, the cavernosa? On the top, yeah. Corpora cavernosa. Cavernosa, cavernosa yeah. Okay. So the spongy erectile tissue that fills up with blood, and as it fills up, the pressure goes up, and those stretch out to make it larger, and they get hard. Because it, re re cause it re re uh, meets resistance, right? right? Cause there's, okay. I mean, you got to think how much it stretches. So nowhere else in the body does it. I mean, you're, nothing sure, stretches nothing's like, like that. that. The problem is I, that when... There's a joke about the iris, you know, it grows. Yeah. And, yeah. The only part that grows as much. Yeah. So when it gets injured, you know, it 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 forms a scar. It, there's no more elastic tissue there. And so it's it's a hard scar. And then that doesn't stretch. But because it doesn't stretch, it's going to curve to that side. Okay. All right. So now we've got a damaged penis that has a, a funny bend to it, the mm -hmm. bent carrot. They say, what can you do about it, doctor? Yeah. I mean, it depends how bad it is. So we usually say it's less than 30 degrees. That's really almost cosmetic. You know, that's 30 degrees. That, that's, that's if it's less than 30, usually it doesn't interfere with function. Okay. So if it ain't too broke, don't fix right. it. Right. Don't try to fix it if it's not going to okay. hurt anything. Then why are there ads on TV? Well, because we device? see a lot of them that are worse than that. And what, what is this thing on TV that, that it's not a drug? No, you're probably seeing Zyaflex commercial. So if, if the scar, there's a, and you can feel it, there's a scar in there. If that is 30 to, technically it's 90 degrees, but that's pretty. 90 degrees. Usually 30 to 60. Uh, no, I mean. I'm just trying to picture I, I that. See, I, 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 I see it all the time. I mean, it's. You see it's it. It's bad. That's bad. Yeah, I mean. You can't it's, have intercourse with 90 no, degrees. No, uh -uh. no. I mean, it's, it's like a right angle. So, so why are these ads on TV if it's not for a drug? Well, what what can do? Is there some device they're selling uh, or something? No, Zyflex is a material that you inject into the scar to help uh, dissolve the scar. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. So it's it's yeah. a biotech or a biomedical 
injection yeah. substance. Yeah. Okay, I could see paying for TV commercials. For yeah, that, so it was probably de- not cheap. Oh, they, yeah, they have millions of dollars. You know, a company that makes the. the gotcha. The so it's an in, they're they're marketing an injection. Injection that yeah. you would put in mm-hmm. just right, and what does that do? How did, does it dissolve the scar? It tries so, to dissolve so the scar. So it's a, it's on on the tight side. Yeah, the contracted side, it'll dissolve it and it'll straighten out more. Yeah, that's yep. what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, and so we do that. I mean, that works better for things that aren't as severe as 90 degrees. It's a series of injections in the office, so it's not very invasive, you know. Is it expensive, and does uh, the insurance pay for it? They do usually pay for it. It's super expensive because they're paying for those yeah, ads. Yeah, yeah, those fancy but it, ads, is, it yeah. is very expensive. And it was actually derived from people that have uh, day portraits contractures. Ah, the hand, yeah, the, th- right. the hand so will contract too. It's, they started injecting into the hand, and they figured out, Maybe I don't know how they thought about why don't we inject into makes sense. Did Puitrine crack contracture is yeah. the scar? Yeah. So that's that was the first indication, and then the Peronis was the next one for for this drug. So okay, so Peronis is is the break you're talking about in the scar tissue. It's yeah. another name for the same thing. The scar tissue, yeah. Peronis disease. The Peronis yeah. disease. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Now. There's the general topic of erectile dysfunction. And as I understand it, one of the most common causes is diabetes or vascular disease, which yeah. is blood vessel disease. Yeah. Blood doesn't flow like it used to. And you can take a pill, something like Viagra or right. related, which dilates the blood. But apparently, you know, Viagra was, you probably know this, was discovered by accident. It's a, a phosphodiesterase type 2 or whatever yeah. inhibitor. And inhibitor. they were using it. Ostensibly, they were studying it for the heart to dilate blood vessels in the heart, right? To see if you get better. Pul- they have pulmonary hypertension. Yeah, and pulmonary. Okay, yeah. yeah. And they were doing, they were testing it for chest or heart yeah. lung disease, right? And they would interview the guys, right? Your side effects and blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't on the list, but guys kept saying, oh, and by the way, I got a raging heart on when I took this medicine. Yeah. Eventually, they said, wait a minute. This is, yeah. A, yeah, and they figured out this phosphodiesterase inhibitor was was good for these blood vessels. Yeah. I think I'm right. right? Yeah, the story. Yeah. yeah. So if you have got mild vascular disease, you can take a pill. You've got some stage fright, or you're taking some other medicines that interfere, or low testosterone or something. Then these these pills work. Yeah. For erectile dysfunction. But what happens if the disease is so bad, or the blood vessels have been so destroyed? Or I understand if a guy's had an erection for too long, is it called priapism? Yeah. yeah. And, and the blood vet, the blood is clotted and it's destroyed yeah. these cavernosa, and yeah. you can't get an erection with pills. Yeah. With pills, what well, you can do a lot of things for these men, can't you? Yeah, yeah, and and even some people with that condition, the Peyronie's disease, that's severe, you know, they all also fall into this bucket. But, um, you know, injections are are a, a less invasive. Which we always offer people, you know, you give yourself an what injection. What do you mean injection? So you inject a material straight into the penis. A drug. A drug. A dilating drug. That dilates the blood vessels to give them an erection. That works if the, say, if the nerves don't work. Maybe you had your prostate uh, out for prostate cancer and the nerves uh, were damaged. Okay. <clears throat> Viagra won't work if the nerves are damaged. The nerves have to be intact for those drugs to work. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yep, because... It prolongs the effect of the nitric oxide. So the, the nerve endings release the nitric oxide, 
there's a material that and that breaks, dilates blood vessels, right? And then there's an enzyme that breaks that down. Well, okay. we prevent it from breaking down the nitric oxide with the Viagra, so that uh, it lasts longer. The effect lasts longer. But if the nerves are damaged, it doesn't matter. So you can inject an active medication, and I assume it's in the it's on the shaft, so it's not very sensitive. In the corpora, in the tubes we were talking about. So you can take a little injection. Yep. And it doesn't hurt that bad. It's like an insulin insulin syringe, it's a tiny very tiny. Needle. You can inject the medicine directly there, yeah. and it's and it's successful. Uh, in in a lot of people, I mean, it's not okay. a guarantee. I mean, there are risks of that. Uh, besides just not working, you can overdo it. So you actually ah. give yourself that priapism, and then you're like, you went from being able to have sex to sitting in the emergency room to wait on a very embarrassing consult. You know, Constantly. and don't they have to like somehow wash the clots out? Uh, if it's sometimes we can just inject a reversal, an antidote, you know, really, to, yeah, constrict the blood vessels to get it to go down. <laughs> I am learning so yeah, much yeah. here. There's an the antidote, antidote. Yes. you can inject a penile antidote, that's like, right. Bring the anti serum, yes, that's right. Yeah, you're basically you're that on constricting, the yeah, on how much. <laughs> 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 so you don't. Have, I heard that you'd have to wash the clots out. That was if, if it's if it's past the point of the the medication working, then you do. And yeah. you need a urologist. And like that, and that can that. go from just with a needle to having to go to surgery. To oh. we used to see it really bad in sickle cell patients. Um, ah, yes. Uh, you still do, but I don't see that population here very often. But in New York, uh, I would see a lot of sick. You know, we would see those people coming into the. It'd be the same guys coming into the ER over and over. Yeah. Poor guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's say the injectable medicines don't even work right. anymore. What well, then, can you do right. for gentlemen for, yeah. with this problem? So then, permanent we, erectile right. dysfunction. So permanent solution would be an inflatable penile prosthesis. Inflatable penile prosthesis. That's right. Tell me more. Okay. So basically, instead of relying on those two tubes that fill up with blood that we've been talking about injecting and all this stuff. We put a inflatable cylinder inside that space. We don't remove anything. You we can just insert it in right there and up. It, and it fills up with saline or salt water. The same solution as all the cells in your body. Okay. It's done through a small incision about an inch long above the base of the penis. Okay. Okay. And there's a little pump in the sac between the testicles. In the scrotum. In the scrotum. A little pump. A little pump. So if you want to get it up, you just squeeze, you just Pump just it up. Pump it up. And pumps up the jams. Yep. Just like uh, it's underneath the skin, so nobody could tell that it's in there after you're all healed up. And there's a reservoir behind the pubic bone or underneath the abdominal wall so that all the fluid can go out. So that uh, it's very natural while you're walking around. You can ride a bike, exercise. Horseback ride. Horseback, yeah. Yeah. You can do it yourself. And now is there a chance that might, that might get infected? Yeah, any foreign body, just like if we place your knee, your hip, whatever, right. there's always a chance of infection. It's very low. All the devices are coated with antibiotics. I do some some techniques to help uh, decrease that even further. Um, we usually quote people one to two percent. I think it's probably not even that high in somebody without diabetes, but with diabetes, you know, that's what uh, we usually quote them. I always make sure their diabetes is under really good control before I would do the surgery, but. Um, we do do a lot of diabetics because those are the people that have a lot of vascular disease. And know? with an experienced surgeon like you who does a lot of them, complication rates are low. Yeah, yeah. 
Yep. Now, is, is that the state of the art, the pump up kind? Because mm-hmm. I know they used to make these kind that would just bend. It was like a permanent yeah, the, erection. Yeah, there's something you know. called right malleable rods. If you ever seen the yeah. gooseneck uh, lamp where you can just kind of bend it, just bend it, it'll and stay. It you know, there are a few guys that I'll do that in with. Just maybe they don't have great manual dexterity, or they just want something. They're older, eighty. They want something very simple. Right. Uh, we'll do it. I don't do a lot uh, because they're just. You know, no reason you gonna you could have right. more complications from erosion, things like that, because it's a rod pushing on the tissue the whole time. So the pump up uh, prosthesis is, is state of the art. Yeah. And that's what you would want. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. I, I joke about getting you know a nuclear powered one. You know, so yeah. You have to. Pump I mean, out. you should. I mean, they when you go to meetings, I mean, they have all kinds of stuff they're working on, remote controls and. <laughs> An app, right? They had one that... <laughs> I would like an erection at 10 p.m. They had this prototype where it would change depending on the temperature. So, like, if it was cold... I can't remember if it was hotter, it would get hard, or colder. But you had this wand, you were supposed to wave over it. And, <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of research going on about that. Amazing. Yeah. You got to argue... I mean, if you don't have the ability to pump it up... You know, you're probably not going to be probably too, don't need too, it. I mean, you're probably I not, guess there yeah. are certain situations, but gotcha. you know, gotcha. Now, if a man has incontinence, he's had. We're going to get to prostate surgery yeah. in a little bit, but but let's say he's got diabetes. I think the sphincter, <clears throat> the normal sphincters aren't working, or he's had surgery or something that's lost the nerves or mm-hmm. whatnot. I mean, does a spinal cord injury cause incontinence? Yeah, it can, depending it on can. where where it is. So do you have, or a sphincter is a, a, you know, a circular muscle yeah. that will contract you. Your iris is a sphincter. Yeah. Your anus is a sphincter. We have sphincters everywhere. Um, do you have artificial sphincters that you can implant in men who are leaking yeah. urine to yeah. give them continence? Yeah, Tell me is, about that. Yeah, that is something I do. So, you know, where I most commonly do that is in patients that have had their prostate removed and they had um, complications. Maybe they their cancer came back, they needed radiation, or they were older when they had it done, and so they're leaking substantially. Because that sphincter, that prostate lies right on top of that sphincter. So, I mean, you're basically sewing right on that sphincter when you reattach everything, or reconstruct the bladder. All right, so the, the, you're in the man, the urethra's yeah. here, the bladder's here, the prostate's in between. So right if you between, take out take the prostate, out. you gotta put them back yep. together. You gotta sew them back so together. So that sphincter can be damaged by those stitches right. and this, the surgery in general. You're also shortening the urethra. That's why uh, women tend to have so much more stress incontinence because there's less resistance because that tube is so short. It's shorter. Just physics, you know, the longer the tube, the more resistance, you know, that goes right. through there. So, um, by taking that out, you're shortening that tube. So basically, what we do is we go in and we put a new gasket on there. And just like for that penile prosthesis, you squeeze a pump in the scrotum. Mm-hmm. There's a pump for this one too. So when you feel full, you want to go to the bathroom, you go stand there, you squeeze the pump, pushes the, the fluid pressure. out. And it lowers the pressure. So and it opens relaxes. it. relaxes. Yep. So you can solve male incontinence that way. Yeah. That must be dreadful dribbling on yourself the whole time. Oh, those are like the happiest patients. Uh, I mean, it's the most rewarding thing you can do because, I mean, they're just, I mean, it's just, can you imagine just sitting in a soaking wet? All the time. Skin is all, Uh, I mean, it's terrible. uh, Just miserable. They just don't even go out in public, some of these. I mean, it's just, some guys even put basically like a safety clip 
or a safety pin clamp on the tip of their penis just to keep it clamp it off yeah oh because they're trying to keep it from suffering so yeah yeah well that's well that's good to know you can do that for people that's wonderful now the next bugaboo of the male anatomy the prostate gland I'm going to say it again, the prostate's between the urethra and the penis and the bladder. Um, it's just part of sexual function. It contributes to uh, um, uh, seminal fluid. I think it adds like 10 or 20% of the seminal fluid. And bladder, the, your, your urine must go through it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it seems that in men, the prostate grows over time. That's right. And it can constrict the ur- urinary flow. So it causes a lot of problems. And... I see all these ads on TV for for prostate treatments, prostate medicines, prostate yeah. herbs, all this stuff, in the, and they're on in the middle of the night because they know we're getting up to yeah. pee in the middle yeah. of the night. Yeah. So tell us a little bit. Let's talk prostate for a little bit, uh, Clyde. Is it true yeah. that if a man lives long enough, he has like at least a 70% chance of getting prostate cancer? Is that yeah. a number? That, that's that a that's number? true. Yeah, I mean, once you get into your 80s, 90s, you know, Usually it's the slow, by that point, if you're asymptomatic, a lot of times it's the slow growing. Okay. So uh, it might not ever affect you in your lifetime, but it could. If you're a good, healthy 80-year-old, uh-huh. it could still affect you. Uh-huh. But uh, if you were just to do autopsies on everybody and they died of other causes uh, and they're 80 to 90 years old, you would find something like that in terms of the... I said, is 70% yeah. a number? Yeah. If you look harder, I know that, you know, 15% of the time you'll find something in the pituitary, un- unrecognized, yeah. you know, all yeah. comers, you know, yeah. all comers. Now, as far as screening for prostate cancer, I think the go-to thing that everybody talks about is the PSA, a blood test looking right. for prostate-specific antigen. Is that generally what most doctors do to screen for prostate cancer, or is there a, a role of, of a digital rectal exam um, yeah, by so, a primary care or urologist. Yeah, so there are two things that are rec- we recommend for screening for prostate cancer, and that's what our, our national guidelines say, uh, at least in urology, and that is the PSA test and the digital rectal exam. And neither one is perfect, but it's a very inexpensive, simple test, and uh, it's a good start. So our goal with any type of screening is to find something before it's a problem. Right. Before it it's spread, or you know, uh, there's more morbidity associated with treating it. So uh, the PSA is a natural protein uh, that's found in all prostate cells, but the cancer cells tend to make more PSA. Okay, that's so, why you don't have zero. You don't walk around with zero. No, it is zero. Right. You walk around with one or something. Right. And if you have a bad infection in your prostate, the number could be very high. Because those cells uh, are damaged and they're leaking that PSA out. So it's not always cancer. You right. get what's called a false positive. Right. Right. right, right. Now, do you think family doctors or internists or someone do enough prostate exams for the the digital exam to be even be even meaningful? Well, unfortunately, I don't, a lot of them don't do it at all. I mean, it's, yeah, I've noticed that. They just, I mean, they patients do it anyway. come and they just nobody does it. Nobody has it. Right, and. You know, I'm sure there are other reasons besides urology to do a rectal exam. I mean, sure. rectal cancer, all right. these yeah, of things. Yeah, rectal so cancer, my I, goodness. I, it's surprising that, you know, people don't get a yearly check. But what we're looking for is, is advanced bad cancer, very hard, large nodule or rock, you know, something that's saying, whoa. So any 
competent, experienced primary care doctor, he or she should be able to, to feel an, an obvious rock hard, yeah. abnormal prostate. Yeah. Now, obviously, someone, a urologist like you, who does you know, literally millions of the exams, you're obviously going to be able to feel something a lot smaller or more subtle. You, you are, but I mean, it's really not uh, feasible to, to every human right, urologist yeah. just to get a check. Right, right, exactly. So, you know, it's just, it's something that I think uh, should be in the realm of family practice. I think it's important to do the screening. Really aggressive, uh, high-risk prostate cancers. Just because they're, you think of cancer, you think the more they are like a stem cell, mm -hmm. uh, the more aggressive they are. Uh -huh. So they actually stop making PSA because they've changed oh, so much. Anaplastic. They, they've lost their so, characteristics. So you may feel a hard rock. And their PSA is two, and they have uh, which is low. A Gleason nine or ten, a very very yeah. aggressive prostate. Cancer. Gleason is a scale you use yeah. to to yeah. judge. So they have a bad cancer stage. Basically. Yeah, so it's you, you uh, should do both. so PSA could could be false negative in that situation. Yeah, false that negative. Situation. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so any thoughts of why does the prostate gland generally grow? in most men over time it's just right? yeah people talk about testosterone and estrogen and cortisol i see all these different theories out there depending on what what bottle of pills somebody is is hawking or trying to sell what's your understanding yeah well, it's please? clearly testosterone i mean testosterone and androgens are what stimulate the prostate to grow you know would that be the the super strong uh, testosterone derivative dihydrotestosterone is right. that part so of it DHT, do you think, too? yep yep that's what when you're Developing as a as a, a fetus, you know that's what stimulates the the sex characteristics. You know the phenotypical male uh -huh. you know, is that DHT. So that's a downstream metabolite of your testosterone. Okay. So and we can talk. I mean that's where some certain drugs work. Um, yeah. Uh, like uh, finasteride, one of the common drugs we use to treat an enlarged prostate, it blocks the DHT. Now, are there side effects with the finasteride? Do, yeah. Does it make you weaker? Do you lose muscle mass? You don't lose muscle mass. Actually, your drug? testosterone level may go up on the drug. Interesting. Paradoxing that. Yeah. But um, about 5% of people will have a significant decrease in sex drive or libido. And some people, that's, that's pretty, pretty severe. I mean, uh, could have some other sexual side effects, erectile dysfunction uh, as well. Is it bad on the liver? Maybe. The finasteride? Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you have a normal liver function. Now, testosterone is hard on the liver. Ah, okay. It, it, that's why we don't take, for the most part, we don't take testosterone pills. We do shots, injections. So it doesn't go through the no, liver so, as, as a pill. Right, you miss that first pass through the liver. Gotcha. For the metabolism. So the growth of the prostate, in your understanding, is testosterone and dihydrotestosterone, not necessarily cortisol or or estrogen. I've heard all kinds of theories from a lot of different places. Yeah. And I just didn't know who, who to believe. Or I also hear this just an inevitable part of aging. It's going to grow no matter what. And, and well, the stimulus is testosterone because that's what we do when we treat prostate cancer. We block your testosterone to stop the cancer from growing. Oh, so, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that, I mean, that's, there's no debate there. I mean, there's, this is... Cut off testosterone that tends to shrink. for... Decades. And it know. slows down. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So let's say a guy has, and the, the common term for 
the common prostate growth is called benign prostatic hypertrophy yeah. or BPH, right? Right. So it's not a cancer, it's a common problem. And I understand you have lots of different treatments or things you can do yeah. for men with an enlarged yeah. prostate. Yeah. So maybe you can tell me, sure. take me through this. You've got, I see on uh, TV, they've got these things for a Eurolift. They've just got something called a tuna, a transurethral nerve, abla- something, something ablation, um, needle ablation. That's tuna. Needle Trans- ablation. Needle yeah. ablation. Um, can we talk about those? Yeah. For, and the steam treatment. Can we talk yeah. about those first before yeah. we go on to yeah. TERPs? So when we break down minimally invasive treatment options, you know, there are things that we do to try and replace medications or, or doing guys that don't want to take pills with potential side effects for the rest of their life. Because that's what we're talking about with pills. It's not like an antibiotic you take for an infection for a week and it goes uh, away. Uh, You've got to take these drugs forever, you know. So one of the, 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 the things we can do besides those drugs is, is, is a minimally invasive treatment. So first line, we have drugs or these treatments. And, and these treatments are going to be Urolift, Resume, uh, and Resume, I'll, is that the steam? Is that the, the steam? Street, the steam treatment. And there's there's a newer one which is basically a, a stent called I tend. Okay. A stent, a tube. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, it's a temporary. We leave it in for about five to seven days. So just to break those down because it, you know, it's, it's a little confusing. Yes, please the, explain. The Eurolift is basically works by as a prostate grows. It pushes the walls together. So if you're trying to blow through a straw and I squeeze the sides of the straw together, it'd be hard to blow through. Okay. Well, that's what your prostate's doing. It's kind of like a trash compactor. It's, the walls are caving in or squeezing together as it's growing. Mm-hmm. And then so that, that tube becomes a slit now that you're trying to pee or urinate ah, through. Ah, okay. So what Eurolift does is it pushes that open. And we use uh, small implants that will pin it open. So it's basically like mm. pulling the curtains back. And that's going to hold it open well how long will it hold it open well maybe forever you know retreatment rates you know we have a you know good five-year data on these things and you know it's pretty good you know it's not going to be the same as a roto-rooter or terp yeah we're going to get to that in a second we'll talk about which is a more aggressive surgery but you know we're talking about replacing medications Talking about uh, something with no sexual side effects, which is important. Ah, uh, okay. So we're, we're talking about minimal side effects for something that maybe isn't quite as aggressive as, as a sur- bigger surgery, but may work very well for, for many years. So you, you have a growing experience with Eurolift. Yeah, yeah. And it's basically favorable? Can yeah, the, the I reviews? think it's, it's very good in the right patients. The problem is it's not, it's not one size fits all. Okay. Prostates come in all shapes and sizes, so you have to take that into consideration. It works better for certain prostates than others. Okay. So there's an evaluation I do in the office where I look in there with a little telescope and an ultrasound and measure the size of the prostate. We say, what makes sense for you? This okay. might make sense. But maybe it doesn't. So you have a, your prostate's not shaped that way. Well, then there's another treatment called Resume. What is that? So that's the steam so basically, it's kind of like a newer tuna where I go through a telescope where I can look in, just like how we used to, you know, treat the, how we treat the stones. We go in with a telescope, and through that telescope, a little needle goes into the tissue, and water vapor comes out. Steam. It, steam. So it's a thermal therapy. It's hot. Yeah. Okay. And, and that treats a one-centimeter ball, okay, or spherical area, 
and then over time that will shrink down. Let me treat a couple different places around the urethra. So then as that shrinks down over time, it's gonna open up that channel, take pressure off that tube. Now the prostate comes in various lobes, right? So would that be for more of the middle lobe that's around the urethra? Um, it's for the middle part of the prostate called the transition zone. That's where we tend to see the benign enlargement. Uh, there are lateral lobes. That's where the walls are coming together. Uh, and then there's also going to be um, a middle lobe, which is like a cork in a bottle. It's, it's uh, growing right into that. That's, that's one of the worst situations. Boy, it sounds complicated to evaluate. Yeah. So you, you want to you, you do an evaluation and see what's going to work. So has this, this um, ablation, um, the, 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 the steam treatment, has that in, superseded the tuna? The, the, is that like better, the resume? Is that better than the... I mean, I don't know if it's better. I think most people just do it now um, because one is direct vision. I can see exactly where that needle goes. It's more readily available. Where, are you talking about the resume? Yeah. The steam? Yeah, versus okay. the tuna, yeah. Okay. Um, and then next is something that's it's newer called I-10. So I-10 works by, we go in with a, uh, a scope and we deploy a stent, which is basically has three wires. Think of like a Mercedes symbol. Okay. So there are three wires. One goes up and then one to each side. And those expand when we deploy it in the okay. prostate. And as they expand over the course of five to seven days, that um, wire will go through and make a groove. So we're making ah. three grooves in that prostate to help the right. flow. And because it's pressure, you, you have less bleeding. It's almost you know a bloodless. You're not incising or cutting out. And then does that out. come out? And then you take it out and five days later. Out. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, the five-year uh, data is, 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 looks pretty good on that when you compare it to taking medications, you know, and minimal sexual, sexual side effects. So... Yeah, I think it's important to remember these are these are a bridge or or something to replace medication. It doesn't; they're not better than a terp. They're not something to replace a terp or a laser surgery on the prostate. Um, well, that's the perfect segue to yeah. the terp. The terp is the the I guess the the go to or the the workhorse treatment for an enlarged prostate, where you put a telescope under yeah. anesthesia, you put yeah. a telescope up there, and actually use a cutting loop and actually cut out or core out yeah. the prostate with the prostate with electrosurgery yeah um is that a more permanent solution or, or what, what are is. the benefits I mean, of a terp well the benefits of that is one it's it's has probably going to be better long term for people with severe symptoms urinary retention in other words they went to the ER, they couldn't go to the bathroom at all. They had to have a catheter put in. And that can back up to your kidneys, right. too. That can oh, have life-threatening problems. Right. It's not just an annoyance. And they tried medications, and they can't get the catheter out. They just can't go. So they're in this severe category. I mean, they just it's a bad blockage. And so we're not going to necessarily mess around with, with these minimally invasive things that are less likely to work in those individuals. That's where something like a TERP comes in, because we're removing that tissue immediately. When you wake up from anesthesia, the tissue is gone. So, you know, hopefully within a day or two when you get your catheter out, you can urinate. So recovery can be that quick with a TERP? In terms of being able to urinate, yeah. To urinate. Now, there are some uh, other things, you know, basically burning 
when you urinate, some irritative symptoms or blood in the urine that take a little longer. Just like if you scrape your knee or your elbow, sure. the lining grows back. Lining grows back inside. It takes weeks. Takes for weeks that to happen. Yeah. For the chance of, um, but, but what's the chance of incontinent in in, in a comp in, a, in an experienced surgeon's hand? It's going to be very low. You know, we say one to two percent. I mean, I think that's probably even high for the way we do it. Now. So the risk of if you catch it early, you don't have any complications. You don't have a cancer, et cetera. You don't have yeah. diabetes and whatnot. The regular healthy guy should have less than a 2% risk of incontinence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, is there is there a diminishment in sexual function? There is. So you, there's a good chance that you will not ejaculate anymore. I've heard that it goes backwards, called goes retrograde backwards. ejaculation. Right. Okay. Right. It doesn't hurt you. If right, you're not right, trying right. to make babies, it's not going to hurt you. Gotcha. Uh, you just urinate it out later. Um, in terms of the nerves that go to the erections, uh -huh. with the technology now, it's pretty uncommon. I never tell a patient there's no possible way it could ever happen, but it would be very rare because uh, the energy is, is is much less now and it's so focused on the tissue, you know, a millimeter away. It's not going to travel all the way through not gonna to spread. the nerves outside the prostate. So that's the so the TERP is the the, the one that, that the go-to surgery that most doctors and most urologists have experience with. It's definitely been around the longest, okay. yeah, and it's something you do a lot of in training. Now, we also... A lot of us use lasers. So what's the difference between laser and electrosurgery? What's so, the difference? Yeah, basically with a laser, we're using a laser to vaporize or ablate the tissue or to cut the tissue. And so by ablating it, we're basically shaving it down, creating that channel. And so a lot of times there's less bleeding with the laser. And so sometimes we can even do people on blood thinners uh, that have a hard time coming off of them with, with laser surgery. Interesting. And, and uh, is there a lot of, is, do you have to go to a specialist with laser or do most urologists? A lot of urologists now coming out of training have experience with lasers. With laser as Pretty well. Pretty common technology. Laser now. as well. Interesting. So, so prostate enlargement, prostate issues, probably, probably just a part of life and, and uh, not much we can do to prevent it, but we can certainly have lots of methods to treat it. Yeah. An experienced right. hand such as you. So let's move on. To male infertility. Okay. This is where you and I work together quite a lot. Now, there are problems with low sperm counts in men, mm -hmm. and then there's zero sperm counts in men. That's called azospermia. Yeah. And azo means none in, in Greek or something close to that. And there's two causes of azospermia. One is the tube can be blocked. So if you have a vasectomy, it's called an obstructive azospermia. And that's and a vasectomy that's on purpose. It's a purposeful right. azospermia. But then there's a problem when, the, when all the plumbing is there, but the, the, the testicles themselves are not making sperm anymore, right? Right. And what you and I see frequently, and I think this is very important, we tell it to the public, that the most common cause, and we see it all the time, common cause of non-obstructive azospermia, meaning there's no longer any sperm in the semen, is that a man's been placed on testosterone treatment. Right. The pellets, the, the long-acting implants, all this kind of stuff. And frequently family doctors or even urologists, I've heard up to 16% of trained urologists think the testosterone, because it boosts your libido and your muscles and sex drive, is good for your sperm, and nothing could be farther from the truth, could it be? 
Right. No, I mean, this is like a growing epidemic. Uh, you know, young men are out there and, you know, we have a growing uh, problem with diabetes, with obesity, just generalized uh, decrease in your overall wellness or health. And low testosterone can be a sign of that. And there's also a misconception on what low is. I mean, there's a bell curve here. We're not all NFL linebackers that can turn over a car, you know, right. with our bare hands. So right. not everybody's going to be the same. And as long as you're in that bell curve, you're in a healthy place for your, your body. And, you know, these guys go to these clinics. They're not run by urologists sometimes. They're, they may not even be a, a physician. And I see guys, it's not infrequent. I mean, they're started on testosterone with completely normal testosterone levels. Uh-huh. And um, they don't realize that it could basically completely shut down the sperm factory. Right. I mean, Completely zero. shuts it down. Zero. Zero. And or if a- they've been on it long enough, it's not a guarantee it's all going to come back. It'll come back. Yeah. Now, if you have a guy who's been on testosterone or has been on anabolic steroids, bodybuilding and whatnot, yeah. Can you talk about the medications that you can, obviously you need to stop the testosterone and these implants and pellets will take a while to dissolve. They don't just stop. They don't just go away. They have to, there's a half-life to these things. It takes a while to go away. Can you talk a a little bit about the medications you might give a guy to bring his sperm count back up and which also can also increase their own natural testosterone production? Yeah. So the way that, that it works is that a man's body can convert the testosterone to estrogen. So we convert some of that to estrogen. And estrogen is the potent uh, natural feedback inhibitor. So that estrogen goes back, gets in the blood, and it goes to the pituitary gland. And it's actually the estrogen that tells the brain, hey, we have plenty of testosterone. Shut down the factory. So then no more signal from the pituitary goes down to the cells that make sperm or testosterone. Called FSH and LH. So, so it suppresses both of them. Suppresses both. It's not ah. just the LH. It's not just testosterone. The side effect is the the sperm. So they're both just shut down. I mean, if if that if a guy's been on testosterone and comes in, and I check the LH, FSH, they're undetectable. Off the okay. scale. So what we want to do is block that that negative feedback. And so there are two drugs that can do that. One is called Clomid or Clomiphene Citrate. Okay. The other one is called Anastrozole. So okay. these are both generic medications. Um, they're we, cheap and they're safe. Cheap, safe. They're used off-label, meaning they're FDA-approved for other reasons. But we've been using it, them in men for decades. Um, there are lots of clinical trials showing they're safe, effective. So one blocks the production of estrogen. I mean, yeah, of estrogen, so it's going to decrease that. The other one blocks the estrogen rece- uh, receptor. That's Clomid clomiphene citrate, so that it tricks the brain into saying, hey, I need to send a signal again. I need to rev up the factory. And that can, that can speed up the sperm yeah. production and also raise their own endogenous, I mean, the testosterone yeah. they're making on their own, right? Right. Now, when would you resort to adding injections of something called HCG? Yeah. So HCG is basically uh, works by um, taking the place of LH. And so it works directly on the testicle, directly on the cells, that make the testosterone. And so if somebody that is just not responding, um, maybe they've been on it for testosterone for a long time, they have a lot of atrophy or shrinkage of the testicles. The fact and you can tell that, you can examine of, oh, a guy yeah, and tell, kind right? Of burned out uh, and they're just not responding, then you can add that. And uh, that's gonna be more potent. Um, 
but you still got to be careful with 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 just using that. You really sometimes that FSH doesn't respond, so you, you can add those other drugs to it. But yeah, definitely we can use that at HCG. Um, it's commonly used actually with people on testosterone to help prevent the factory from shutting down. Gotcha, gotcha. So it could be a little tricky to use. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you help us get sperm so we can do in vitro fertilization. Sure. Um, I'll let people know that when, when humans reproduce naturally, guys are making hundreds of millions of sperm try to get thousands of sperm up into a woman's fallopian tubes because that's what you need to fertilize an egg. And you yeah. need thousands of sperm banging on that poor little egg to get one in. Yeah. People say it takes one. Yeah, well, it takes an army to get that one right. in. With modern reproductive technology and in vitro fertilization, we can inject a single sperm into each egg. So if a woman has 20 eggs, we need 20 sperm. Now, if we don't have many sperm or they're in the semen or they're damaged or there's none in there, Frequently, there's still being sperm being produced in the testicles. Isn't that right? Right, right, right. So we do some we do some hormone tests. I think that that will uh, give us some idea if there's sperm in the testes, right? And what can you do, Clay, to help us get enough yeah. sperm to establish a pregnancy with in vitro fertilization? Right. So, so one of the, the common procedures I do is I. Uh, we'll make a little incision on the front of the sac or the scrotum. So it's a testicular biopsy. Testicular biopsy. And it's done under anesthesia usually, right? Usually, yeah. Usually. Yeah. yeah There's yeah. the occasional brave guy that'll do local. But yeah, yeah. It's nicer it's when you're ideal. asleep. It's so nicer to, when you're to, asleep. To have some sedation. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then you also make a little uh, incision on the, the front of the testicle. And we actually take the seminiferous tubules. Those are the tubules that house the sperm. We actually take some of those out. And we're getting fresh, clean, healthy sperm. Uh, they haven't been subjected to toxins that you may yeah. see further down the tubes or down the, track, the line, the right? Yeah. And um, we can give those right to the, like in your lab, I can give it right to the embryologist, and he can tell me in real time, oh, good, we got lots of good, healthy swimmers, or uh, not looking so good, we need more. And so we can go and get get a little more or, or try a different spot. And it's all done through a very tiny incision, maybe. Less than half an inch. So. And guys go home later that day, just in an hour go or so, home. put some frozen carrots That's or peas right. on their crotch for a day or two, and they're good to go, right? Yep, yep. Similar yeah. to like a vasectomy in terms of discomfort. Yeah. Fantastic. So with, with a trained urologist, we can hook her by crook. If there's sperm in there, we can usually get to them. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to talk about the guys who have just a few sperm here and there in their testes. There, there are you know, specialty clinics that can, can find sperm when there's really not many yeah. in there. It's called microdissection, and um, we, we won't go into that necessarily. Um, now, are there any aspects of urology that I've not covered? Are there any, is there anything, any procedures you do that, I, that the public uh, should know about that I um, have not covered yet? Boy, we've been... I've tried to go through the whole system. I thought I was thorough. You, uh, um, you know, from a fertility standpoint, sometimes we will. Uh, I'll go in and uh, if the the ducts are blocked, I'll do a procedure to unblock the. That's right. Ducts. That's right. There's an obstructive azospermia yeah. that you can repair. You can that fix that as with well. the telescope, just like the BPH procedures. We go into the telescope. You know, I think we talked a lot about. Most of the, oh, uh, one thing I do do is uh, urethroplasty. So if somebody has a oh. stricture, 
a so tight spot in the urethra. Scar tissue in the urethra. Is it generally a man? Oh, uh, yeah, but usually. Usually, okay. yeah. It's pretty uncommon in female. Yeah. Usually it's a man. And so you get the scar tissue. If it's real mild, sometimes we'll try stretching or dilation or even go in and cut with a laser or a, a little knife through the telescope. But if it's bad or if it's come back, we have to be more aggressive, then we'll actually cut out the scar, either sew the two back together, or sometimes we'll put a patch on there. We oh. use the lining on the inside of the mouth. Yeah, it's that's what, right. That's right. Some of you'll see cases on the board where yeah. we'll have Dr. Mecklin and one of the ENT doctors right, right. who's harvesting the buckle graft, buckle yeah, graft yeah. from the mouth. Yeah. Do we see that in, in little boys and stuff if you're yeah. doing urethroplasties? Yeah. We'll yeah. use buckle tissue. Buckle right. is, the, is the gum, the cheek lining. That's right. And it, it'll transplant to the urinary system. Yeah, because you think about it, I mean, think of how dirty the mouth is. So you have this robust immune system ah. in that tissue. It's used to being wet all the time. Okay. Perfect. If you took your skin from outside, one has yeah. hair on it. That's not good. That's not good. Yeah. The, the other thing is that it's not used to being wet. I mean, just think about what happens when your skin's like you're in your groin or, or incontinent. Right. It breaks down. It, Horrible. It just, yeah. So you need something that's used to that environment. And that, that's really the perfect lining is, is that buckle graft. And that heals pretty good? Mm -hmm. The donor side heals pretty good? Yeah. Fantastic. So, Clay, I always uh, want my guests to tell me some, some stories. Can you tell me like the wildest thing that ever happened during your training or your practice that would be of just just of general interest? Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. You've well, encountered in your in, in your training or your practice. Well, we can do uh, we can do one from each, I guess. In training, we used to cover the maximum security prison, and so there was a prison ward, and all the prisoners would come to our ER, um, and so. The prisoners like to get out of the prison. And one way to do that is by doing something to themselves. Oh, that needs medical to get attention. To go to the hospital. Oh. And that usually involves sticking things in your urethra oh. or other openings. Oh. And so, <laughs> and we would see the same offenders over. I mean, uh. you would think like they would stick a spoon or uh. Uh, a fork up their urethra. And, oh. and, and this stuff, or you know, uh, screws, and and and, and you'd be in you'd be in the ER in the middle of the night. You're a resident. You're like, come on, trying to figure out how to, you know, could we get this out without having to screw go out to the, go to the OR and you know take I, three hours and general anesthesia, and you know, versus just pulling it out there while they're chained to the bed. You know, I mean it. Oh my and, God. and then they would they would do it again. I mean, ah! and, and like one guy had an ostomy, you know, so a urinary oh. diversion where you, you have a, basically a bag on for the but, urine drains. Okay. Are, are so you not put, a colonoscopy, but a ureteroostomy? Well, right. Or so, a, a right. So you had a conduit or whatever right. they call it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Urinary diversion. So the urine just comes to a bag. Just like some people have colostomy for bowel reasons. Urine. Well, he would stick forks and spoons up in there and, You'd have to go in and fetch them out. So the prisoners always kept us busy with some pretty ridiculous stuff. Uh, in my practice, since I've been here, one of the craziest things I saw was this guy, young guy, I mean, maybe 30, maybe upper 20s. And he wasn't married. I think it was his girlfriend. Was kind of, uh, they were kind of Eastern European. 
And he came to my clinic for a problem with his penis. And he had gone on the internet and read or watched a movie on how to do a penile augmentation to give you more girth. Oh, to make it bigger. Make it bigger around. He wanted a bigger penis. His partner. Uh Uh-oh. I don't know how much he had to do with it. And so this involved injecting Vaseline under the skin at home. So, of course, it got infected. Oh. And it was coming out of this. I mean, it was. was, So we took him to the OR, and it was really. And this is something that's out there. I mean, people, there are clinics in other countries that do this. A more sterile technique, but it's still. The side effects can be. Horrendous. Significant. Because your body rejects foreign bodies. It wants to get them out. Right. So it's going to get inflamed. It's going to do everything it can to spit this foreign body out of there. So we removed as much as we could. But Did he lose his penis eventually? No, he didn't lose it. But it, you know, a lot of it was still in there. I mean, we couldn't just remove everything. Severely scarred. Yeah, yeah. Or I'm going to say he now has a Franken penis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't think she was impressed. I don't think the out, outcome was what that. he wanted. <laughs> what he wanted, but that that was a that was a pretty interesting one. Oh I'll my goodness! Sure. Oh my goodness, Clay. Well, I'm glad he didn't lose his penis, but boy, he probably he could have if it got yeah. much worse. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, we see in the Peronis, you know, right? You know, it's seen a complete curly cue. A complete curly cue. But, I so thought that, ninety degrees was no, bad. No, no, it actually when it was erect, it's pushing against the abdominal wall like like a handle like a suitcase i mean just completely all the way like into that. the skin and the abdomen because it's 180 degrees 180 degrees yeah 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 wow yeah wow <laughs> well that has that has totally piqued uh my my interest and in, and i think satisfied it as well so i think that that's yeah what I, that's what I was looking for here with all the, uh, the weird things we see in the practice of medicine. Yeah. Fantastic. Sure. Well, Clay, I want to thank you for a very informative discussion. I learned an awful lot. Um, I really appreciate you, uh, what you've uh, done for my fertility practice. You're a wonderful colleague. I know you help a lot of people here uh, uh, in, in the Midwest with their various uh, urologic issues. And once again, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's really been a pleasure. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Clay.